created live on Fireside. Welcome to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is the next evolution of professional development in higher education. Every week, it is my honor to bring you higher education thought leaders, topic current trends, and new information to ponder. Shows are replayed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Pods. Subscribe, rate, and share your favorite, uh, share on your favorite podcast app. And of course, we are here on Fireside. We are live. Uh, veterans have a proven track record for being self-motivated and completing their studies and add a diversity of lived experiences to college campuses. Having a campus that is considered veteran ready goes beyond a yellow ribbon or an asterisk in a view book. Uh, there are essential components to what makes a campus truly veteran ready and achieving such benefits entire campuses. Uh, Dr. David Vaki uh, from the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island will be my co-host for this three-part series on veteran-friendly campuses this month on Fireside and replaying on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. Welcome, everybody. If you're new to this show, please uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Dr. Laura DeVoe. I am your primary host here on Fireside, and thank you all for being here. Uh, Professor David Bakke, PhD, is a nationally recognized expert in the area of student veteran success and has worked in faculty or administrative positions in higher education since 2005. I love when they put the date there so you can, you know, show how old you are. Um, he is an expert in qualitative research and has overseen the doctoral research of over 40 candidates. A combat veteran in the United States field artillery in operations, enduring, uh, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom. He has a reputation in impacting success at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels throughout his military and higher education experience. His book, entitled Straight Talk for Veterans, is an evidence-based handbook intended to help veterans successfully transition to higher education or the workplace. Welcome, David Baki. How are you, my friend? It's great to be here, Dr. Laura. Um, <laughs> that was a massive introduction, and so I'm very humbled right now. <laughs> well, I am. I am thrilled to have you here. You're one of my favorite people. You know, I always say you got to keep that that Rolodex full. And for people of a certain age, we know what a Rolodex is. That's you got to right. keep that Rolodex full and you got to keep it active and you got to nurture that network. And you, David, are one of my favorite people. So welcome uh, to uh, be my co-host for the next three uh, episodes of Office Hours on this really important topic. Uh, before we get started uh, today, uh, can you give us a chance? Like I gave you a nice introduction, but that was the book introduction. Tell me a little bit more. Let's let the world know a little more about David Baki. Tell them where, why you're uh, right now in beautiful uh, Newport, Rhode Island. What brought you there and, and a little more about your background. So when I was born, no, we won't go back that far. Yeah, no, that, uh, we don't need to go that far. 
<laughs> no, I, I really enjoyed my time in the military. And, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, as, as many others do, you know, you find ways to contribute to the community when you're young. Uh, not everybody does, but it was one of the things that I did. And, and I, I enjoyed leading because it was my way to take care of soldiers, as we say in the army. And, uh, you know, there's doing the mission, but I think that if you're taking care of the people in your organization, then they will make sure that you're successful in doing whatever the mission is. I think some people get that backwards at, at leadership and they're so focused on doing the mission themselves that it doesn't work right. So I view myself as a servant of others. And um, when I retired, I uh, started my doctoral work at UMass. I, I had a great three years of being the commander of the ROTC program there. And that was when I got my feet wet in higher education and I uh, was able to create an elective and I taught not just in the ROTC program, but at the university level. And I was like, huh, this is really cool. When you ha create a course, I created a course on Iraq. And when you have a course that's interesting and done well, people will want to be in your class. And there's a great synergy there. Um, I mean, and, you know, and that's kind of when I started really getting into a lot of speaking because I had my teaching, but then I also had my research that I began doing. And I realized that there's a um, there's like a cycle, if you will, when, when people are engaged in whatever it is you're talking about, it makes you be even more animated and better at communicating what you're trying to talk about. And so I really like that. <clears throat> and I actually didn't mind the administrative stuff too. Uh, and so, you know, fast forward a little bit, I, I, I earned my doctorate, did my research on student veterans. And then I began, uh, my wife actually moved, um, her job moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I moved um, with her and uh, began working um, at UNC Charlotte. I worked there for a little while. And then I, uh, I worked as a director of curriculum development for an, an online master's degree program. And then I began um, overseeing doctoral research at Liberty University and, and their PhD programs in their school of ed. And uh, so, you know, just doing those kinds of things in, in many ways, just serving others, which is really what I like to do. And then an opportunity um, to come here to Newport to the U.S. Naval War College just sort of emerged last year out of nowhere. Um, one of our friends at University of Rhode Island, um, Amory Vaccaro, um, was like, you should apply for this job. And so here I am. Um, and, uh, and, and in my current job, I focus on accreditation for not only um, regional accreditation, but the, the joint staff and the Department of Defense. So there's kind of three different streams of accreditation. Uh, and I also have the opportunity to teach a leadership course for the students who come through here. Students who come through here in the programs that I'm involved with are um, mid-career and senior officers in uh, mostly the Navy, but from across the joint force. And uh, these are the people who, you know, six to eight years from now are going to be leading the entire Department of Defense. So it's a really great privilege to, you know, contribute in a small way to the success of those people. And uh, and that that's really, you know, kind of the hallmark of what I've always liked to do. I like to figure out how to do something. And I like to share it. I like to share things that I can help people with. And, you know, if talking about, you know, what I've seen uh, regarding student veterans helps other campuses, other professionals better conceptualize and better put into practice the things they're doing for student veterans, then I can't imagine doing anything better than that. That's great. You know, I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about you, David, is that you have this really deep commitment to making sure that our veteran students uh, have a place on our campuses. 
and you've really taken this to be kind of your your mission to make sure that there are there are actual resources that are evidence-based that are not just about, well, my hunch is da-da-da-da-da, or my impression is da-da-da-da. You know what it is. And I, and I think that was part of the reason why uh, I, I wanted to have this three-part conversation with you. Um, before teasing out what the next two episodes are going to be, I want to make sure those folks who are joining us live on the initial uh, broadcast of the show know that if you have a question or you want something to, you want to contribute today, because we have a nice uh, audience here today, uh, in your lower left-hand corner of the Fireside app, you have an opportunity to uh, request to come up on stage or ask a question uh, through the Q&A button, which is on the right side of your app. So lower left, you can request to come on up on stage. Uh, on the right-hand side, you can uh, request to ask a question in the Q&A. Um, so, in the next two episodes, uh, this today's episode is really about veteran-friendly, veteran readiness. What does this actually look like in practice? We're going to talk a bit about uh, how it might change in terms of gender of veterans, uh, how that might, how you might need to address it a little differently depending on if you have male uh, identifying uh, veterans versus female identifying veterans and what that looks like. But in the upcoming episodes, we have uh, episode two, we're looking at di uh, disability services and mental health. And then the third episode, we're looking at employability, making sure we get those veterans out into the workforce. Why did you think that those two uh, episodes were important to follow up on this veteran-friendly episode? Well, I think that We'll skip to the last one first, right? So to be fair, I don't know of too many veterans who go to college simply because they think it's the next thing that they should do. It's a pathway to employment. And in most cases, the aspiration is to begin stepping up the socioeconomic ladder. So um, really, the focus of everything that we're doing for student veterans should have a culminating uh, goal of gaining them, you know, good employment at, at the end of it, which is not unlike what we should be doing for all of our students, right? So right. that's sort of the end. Um, along the way, where we've kind of tripped ourselves up a little bit over the last 15 years or so, or maybe even longer, is one, this idea that thinking that all of our veterans are broken because we're not, um, and even the broken ones do well, right? And so, um, so this idea that this is a deficit population is not true. Um, there's really no evidence of that. Um, and, and I, uh, you know, along the way with singing my happy tunes about student veterans, uh, I always talk about the strengths of student veterans and how successful they are because these are facts. Um, and in spite of physical or mental disabilities, um, or injuries or whatever, veterans still succeed. So focusing on pobrecito veteran is not the right orientation for that. Um, however, there are um, campus services that are underutilized, especially for veterans, um, maybe even especially for women veterans. And, um, and, and these are also some services that might be underutilized for other populations as well. But when you start talking about mental health services, disability services, academic services, um, I, I think that there's room for improvement in one, awareness of those programs for veterans, and two, 
the fact that uh, and this is this isn't this is a lens through which we should be looking right we we should be thinking that we need to be informing our veterans about this stuff and normalizing the use of all these services all of these services are not there to give anybody an advantage or whatever it's to level the playing field to help you reduce obstacles that otherwise might distract you and veterans are the worst in this regard right oh i'm missing a leg and i can't hear out of my right ear but no problem i'll walk on the other leg i'll use a crutch and i'll listen out of my other ear i don't need to go to disability services okay but you can go to disability services it's okay no one's going to shame you for it no one's going to think you're a weak link and this is a very difficult thing as we will talk about when we get to that episode is we get into the weak link mentality when we're in the military and it's very hard to unlearn that programming because the military breaks you down and builds you back up into this strong superhero thing which is just not that's the thing that's not normal right <laughs> right <laughs> right exactly you know it's it, and i'm glad you're saying that and i think that there's there's so much i i hope of these next three episodes that people will be able to say you know what this is applicable for my veteran students but also let's where can we be brought in this uh, in terms of how we're reaching out and, and actually connecting with with all of our students. I think we saw this during the height of the pandemic when a lot of things went to remote and people said, you know what, people actually like some of these services, these transactional services better in a remote environment. Um, and it actually better serves our commuter students or our students who are adult learners or whatever the case may be. And then all of a sudden, it turns into, oh, 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 wait a second, we can keep this? Yes, we can. Um, and so you learn from certain populations about how you can actually provide better service for everybody. Um, and as you said, that level playing field uh, absolutely is important when it comes to making sure people have a mindset around the services that are provided and that one person's not getting something extra. It's about making sure everybody is is working from the same playing field in terms of their ability to succeed. Um, when you set out to write your book, David, you created a text that's not only about rehashing the GI Bill, like that you can literally go online and learn a, a lot of things about the GI Bill um, or its legislation or anything like that, but rather it was really about uh, the education of veterans. And as you say uh, in one of the quotes about the book, the end state of attending college for veterans is not simply to earn a degree, but to improve prospects for the career that will move a veteran from, uh, forward to increasing economic prosperity. As such, the book takes a progressive approach from transitioning out of the military into and through higher education and out into the work world, which we uh, have touched on and we're gonna talk even more about in the last episode of this series. Um, I've been an administrator on, an, on a yellow ribbon campus, on a couple of yellow ribbon campuses. And it, and it was typically marked with a flourish and a little like, woohoo, we're a yellow ribbon campus and let's put it on our website and let's make sure our admissions folks know this. But I, I'm, I wanna talk about the upkeep of what makes you a yellow ribbon campus. At that point, it, there wasn't a lot of upkeep. There was some things as far as how the, the primary administrator of the Yellow Ribbon program worked, which was our registrar. She was the one who kind of handled a lot of a, a lot of it because of the fact that you had to manage credits and and where a student kind of sat in terms of their academic progression. But could you talk to us about Yellow Ribbon status, what that means, and how it may actually not be potentially living up to the veteran friendly status? 
that some veteran students may be hoping for? Sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a yellow ribbon um, school. I mean, yellow ribbon simply means that your school is probably a little bit more expensive than uh, the traditional state school. Um, so the GI Bill uh, will generally pay for um, up to the most ex- expensive state school in whatever state uh, you are a resident from or wherever you live. And um, so, you know, you were administrator at Mount Ida. We have lots of um, high cost schools in the Boston area. You know, if you want to go to Boston College, for example, um, and, and I actually don't even know if they're a yellow, yellow ribbon program, they probably are. But, um, you know, it's going to cost way more to go to Boston College than it will to go to UMass Amherst. And so the yellow ribbon program is an agreement between the institution and the Department of Veteran Affairs and actually the Department of Education where an agreement is that the Department of Education and Veterans Affairs will pay half of the difference and then the institution will pay the other half of the difference of whatever is over and beyond the most expensive state school in the state. And so what it does is for those veterans who have the, um, the the aptitude to be able to get into some of these more high-performing places, you know, the generic ones, you know, Harvard, Northeastern, Boston University, Boston College, and any number of other places in the, in the greater Boston area, that um, now we can't make the excuse of, well, we just can't afford to go there. A yellow ribbon school has made a commitment that those high-performing academic potential veterans, we are going to welcome them and we're going to make it as though the GI Bill has just allowed them to pay enough to go to UMass. And so it, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great program there, but that's fine. But if, you're, so if your campus does that, but then by and large, the student body and the faculty and the administrators and staff are kind of hostile or indifferent to veterans – then it becomes a big so what. And this is where, you know, yellow ribbon is a fine starting point. But unless you're truly veteran friendly or veteran ready uh, or whatever, whatever label that, you know, the, the label of the month is for, for that, everybody right. seems to want to change it all the time. Um, th- then it kind of doesn't matter, right? You're going to have a negative experience and you risk dropout, which is, you know, that that is bad juju in higher education. We don't want dropouts, right? No, no. So, so when you're talking about unfriendly, when you're talking about a hostile environment, like I remember I, I had a professor when I was an undergrad um, who we, they the just, so he was a very popular professor, um, very like he's written a million books that people all kind of point to because he had this kind of counterculture kind of look of life. And I found his class really interesting. It was really about this idea of, you know, flipping the narrative in terms of uh, life and and all that. But he, and and really was one of the first opportunities for me to like really look at what is social justice that we now call it. He didn't call it that back then, but you know, cause I'm 105 years old, but, but we, we called it something different. Um, but when, our class, and I will never forget this, and this is this is goes to the extreme of not being uh, friendly to to folks who have a military identity. Um, the class itself met on Wednesdays, and Wednesdays at my un- undergraduate institution was the day that anyone who was in the ROTC program had to dress in uniform because they had ROTC classes that day. And 
this professor refused to call on a student wearing military uh, identification, uh, you know, a, a uniform. And there was a student who literally stood up, like it was one of these big, you know, traditional old auditorium style things. There must have been 400 students in the class. And the kid stood up and, and had his hand way up above his head, wanting to be called on. And he literally ignored him for the entire class. Like the student was bullshit because he wanted to be called on. I am, I, I am, that is an obvious uh, situation where a faculty member is being not supportive of a student. Beyond that, what are those subtle things that a faculty member may be doing, whether they're doing it consciously or unconsciously, that may be creating an environment for a veteran student, let's keep it on the veterans, that may put the veteran in a situation where they say, you know, I don't, I've put up with enough, I don't need to deal with this, or have uh, pushed them in a direction where they may not want to remain, uh, remain in school. Right. So I, I, I think, too, that most of it is unconscious or subconscious, right? There, there, are, there are some out there, you know, like that faculty member that you're talking about who is going to make it their mission. When we, when we log off, I'll say. Okay. <laughs> there, there are a handful of people out there who I'm sure are going to try to make life miserable for veterans or anybody wearing a uniform. And okay. Um, but for the most part, right, we, we need to, you know, I, I talk in sort of gener generalities about student veterans, right? So let's talk in generalities about faculty. The faculty is not necessarily anti-veteran, right? Overtly. Right. Um, but it's it's through um, a lack of awareness, a lack of cultural competency, if you will, or even just, you know, awareness of certain um, dynamics that faculty will go down a path and not realize that they've done something. It's no different than um, you know, let's let's change channels for just a quick second, right? We have gone on an evolutionary path for the last 15 or 20 years about gender, gender identity, sexuality, and various of these kinds of things. And so some people are immersed in that world either because they are on the spectrum somewhere uh, rather than a traditional binary place. And then there are other people who don't engage in that medium very much. I'm one of those people and mm -hmm. I don't care, be anywhere you want, you know, do whatever you want. This is, a, you know, free country, a free world, you know, I, I don't hate any of that. Um, but the odds that I'm going to get one of these terms correct is low. And, but the intention is not to offend anybody. It's just that I need to be around it more. There needs to be more muscle memory, more uh, learning and development. And it's just hard. It's like we were talking about using the new Fireside app and doing other things on social media. It's like, I don't do it enough. I don't have enough muscle memory to remember. I don't engage with it enough. And so, so it, it's hard. And so it, it's easy to say, well, faculty need more cultural competency, but that can only come to be done well with a lot of repetition. I don't know if there's bandwidth for that, but I'll give, and I'll give a couple. And exposure, yeah. you know, so yeah. if, a if a faculty member hasn't had a student who is a veteran in their class for, you know, on regular, on the regular, they're not going to understand what they're doing. They're not right. going to realize that what they may be, may be 
portraying in terms of their uh, how they're how they're conducting class, how they're managing things, how they're engaging with the student, it may not be there, and the student may not be all that willing to say, "Hey, I I, I hope you know, your intent." I'm not seeing an intent here. I think the spirit behind what you're doing is 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 not to be rude or or to you know kind of point a finger at me, but let me tell you what this looks like. Right. And, and so, you know, I'll give you an example of one of the things that can happen. And, and again, this is not necessarily limited to veterans, but it can be exacerbated in, in the veteran instance. So uh, Middle Eastern studies professor, right, or, you know, whatever, some, something along those lines, right? So this is a professor who has been, you know, uh, got their degree in this area and has been teaching in this area, or maybe they didn't even get their degree in that area, but they've been teaching this course because they're a history person or whatever, uh, but they've never been there. They don't speak the language. Um, they understand the textbook of the culture, but they haven't truly engaged in the culture. They haven't lived in the culture. And, um, you know, they, they, they say something like the following out of the, the news from the last 20 years. Oh, in Iraq, the Sunnis and Shias hate each other. Mm. Okay, Albert Einstein. Um, no. <laughs> First of all, no. Um, and, and second of all, it's far more nuanced than that, right? So Iraqis are Iraqis first, and then they are their branch of Islam second. That is something that a lot of people don't know. It doesn't appear to be relevant in the, the reporting news media. Um, and oh, by the way, unlike many other places where, uh, uh, give the United States, for example, there's no political structure that is laid over the top of, say, the Protestant church and a, or a political structure, say, for example, that's laid over the top of the Catholic church, right? However, in Iraq, the political structures are almost 100% overlaid over these Islamic affiliations, Sunni and Shia. And it's the political arms of these organizations that hate each other, not the average rank and file Iraqi, right? So unless you've really been in the culture, lived it, seen it firsthand like I have, I may say something in your course that says, well, it's really not the way it is, XYZ, give the explanation that I just gave. And now one thing has happened. The sage on the stage has just been embarrassed. And two, you know, and so then how do we respond to that? And it's typically the response by the faculty to that that uncovers the veteran unfriendliness. They either dismiss the veteran offhand or they will then try to create a hostile environment to get revenge for, you know, you exposing my true lack of knowledge as the supposed faculty. So that that's a way that um, veteran friendliness can manifest in the classroom that not a lot of people talk about. Um, other ways are, you know, simple matters of um, oh, do you remember Professor X at the beginning of the semester? I told you that I was going to have a, a, a knee surgery at the VA in October. And um, so I'm going to be out for a week. Can I get my homework assignments in advance? Um, can I do any work in advance? No, no, you have to take the, the exam that week. And if you have a knee surgery, I'm sorry. 
I mean, what universe are we living in, right? If someone wheeled in in a wheelchair or had special needs or whatever and said that they had to do some medical thing during the week of a test, the faculty wouldn't even hesitate, right? But because this is a veteran with some issue. Um, now, the flip side is, I always say, is that it's incumbent upon the veteran at the beginning of the semester in late August to tell the faculty ahead of time that's going to happen. Right. That's reasonable. Um, sometimes veterans forget to do that, but you know, that's, that's a thing. And there are any number of, of other ways not. And then the other things are just like the offhand stuff. Um, like, oh, you know, at this point we are ironically coming full circle with this, but for some reason there's now this, we, we, when people first started thanking me for my service, like in 2005, it made me uncomfortable. And then I got used to it. Well, now veterans are and active duty military are getting uncomfortable again with this thank you for your service because we've kind of been out of the, the big part of these wars for many years now. And so it's making people uncomfortable again. And so if we if we, you know, do those kinds of things, you know, I don't know, maybe there maybe there's a different way we should be doing things. I think it's still okay to thank people for their service because it's a great thing that you serve, whether it's wartime or peacetime. But um, but then again, you know, we're supposed to be selfless servants in the military. And so, um, you know, we're, we don't expect to be thanked. It's nice to be appreciated, but you don't have to make any special effort. Well, it's not a big special effort. They're just acknowledging, right? So, you know, there are just those kinds of nuances. And then, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more now and then in, in next week. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to do a degree, but I, I might need some help. And I don't know where to go get help, right? right. Um, and, right. And, 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 you know, the standard student affairs professionals, God love them, are going to like, well, that was an orientation. Okay. Right. No one is paying attention <laughs> to orientation, dirty there's secret. There's no magic pill. Yeah. <laughs> there's no magic pill. And, yeah. you know, you're going to fire hose these people for a day and a half. What do you really, you know, no educator would say that people are going to retain very much of that, right? So there are better ways to do that. I don't know what the answer is, but sprinkling it out, spreading it out over time. But more importantly, you know, some sort of intake at some point, and you, you know, it's hard to do this with, you know, 5,000 students in the freshman class. But if we have, you know, 100 new student veterans and a veterans affairs office, well, maybe you can do an intake. You know, do you have any issues, right? Um, do you think you might need any help? Oh, I don't need any help. Well, you don't have a left foot. You know, how do you yeah, get around yeah. campus, right? Yeah. Or, you know, did you get blown up when you were in Iraq or, or whatever, right? And, oh, you mean I can get help for that? Well, yeah, it's not. I mean, anybody who has loss of hearing can get a hearing accommodation. It's not limited to veterans. It's not giving the advantage that everybody has that advantage. If, you know, if you have a traumatic brain injury, there are similar things that happen to non-military people for which you can get testing accommodations. Really? That's not an advantage? No. You're at a disadvantage because your brain doesn't work the way a traditional brain works. And we are trying to make an accommodation so that you can still demonstrate your learning. And maybe in an hour exam, maybe you need two hours for the exam. Okay, we can do that. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. No, of course you didn't know it was a thing. And having a sensitivity, and, and you, you're always good about correcting me when I'm, I'm in a, when I'm wrong. But I think that when you have a, a veteran, um, there is they let's say they have an injury of some kind. Okay, whether it be a traumatic brain injury or they've lost a limb or or a, or a part of their body, they now can no longer serve. 
they put themselves in for you know this this path of life to serve their country to do this work and now for any litany of reasons they have now been told by the uh, organization that they have committed themselves to that sorry we can't use you anymore and that idea, we'll, we'll get into this more in the future uh, in terms of next week's uh, topic, but I think it's important to frame right now because if you have a student who's come in who has just been told you're no longer useful to us and now they come to your campus and, they are, and you're trying to get them to ask for help and they're like, well, the frick, the last time I asked for help, now that got me tossed from the military. I'm not going to ask for help. Am I right. wrong here? Is there something there? Yeah. So actually, there's there's two there's there, and you're not wrong. Um, one of the real so <laughs> you and I, I have this conversation. <laughs> you and I have this conversation on occasion about the extent to which the country has awoken with awokeness, right? Um, so yeah. one, so and I'm quick to point out, you know, downsides sometimes to some of that stuff. But here's an upside, right? So the military. Um, if, if you can still do something that helps the military, even though you've lost a leg or an eye or whatever, there are now accommodations where you can still continue to serve, which is cool. That's new information um, to me. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very cool. Um, but by the same token, you know, I can no longer be a special forces team leader because the lower half of my right leg is now missing. I have a blade instead. Um, right. And so um, so I can't be in the special forces anymore. Oh, well, you do you want to go into their special recruiting office and go around the country and tell your story? Now, nah, just get out and go to college. So it, it's akin to what you just talked about is I've kind of been discarded by the military. And, um, and and that's a tough spot to be in. And so, again, it's not I mean, again, we, we look for these connections between other students, you know, I mean, it's horrible to even think about, but did some young person get raped when they were in high school or was somebody in a fire where they're in a horrible car wreck where their whole family died? These are severely traumatic kinds of things. And so even though those people didn't serve in the military, they have some baggage that the school, many schools have a great many resources that can help you deal with so you can engage in the activity of learning. And veterans are just one of many people. It's it's the source of what created that. It's a little bit different, but that it's there is not limited to veterans. And so, um, so again, to to be sharing the awareness of these kinds of things, do some kind of intake, somehow make people aware of it. Um, you know, and then you know, my worst fear is that someone who was in that horrible car wreck when they were sixteen years old is bottling that up and is not able to 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 you know, deprocess that with anybody. And now they're trying to focus on college level algebra or calculus or physics or whatever. And it's like, all they keep doing is revisualizing that ball of fire that went up in the engine and how they, you know, they were ejected from the car, but everybody else's seatbelt worked and they stayed in there and burned up. I mean, that's horrible. And if you're not talking to anybody about that, that's going to really, really be a negative drag on your life until you can really process that thing. So, and veterans are no different. And so to, to make that awareness for that, um, I, I, I think is really good, but yeah, this idea that veterans can feel like they were discarded or their life purpose uh, and where it happens a lot is, um, I thought I was going to be a career person and now I, 
am not going to have a career. I, I aspired for that retirement or I wanted to serve my country for 20 or 30 years and now I can't do that. And so there's a great deal of disappointment that goes with that. Well, I guess I'll go to college. Well, that's not a highly motivated entrance into the college experience, right? <laughs> no, no. And, and so I think that, you know, there are two things here. Number one, there is applicability here. We talk about when we are advising or providing success uh, coaching or whatever it might be called at your institution is that the lived experience of the person doing the coaching has a bias baked in. And so my lived experience is going to be very different than someone else's lived experience. And I have to actively understand what, what my bias is and how that might impact the students I'm working with. I am not a first generation college student. So I am not a person of color. I am not, there's a lot of things I am not. Okay, and that I have to make sure that as I'm looking at students, veterans included, is that there is going to be a bias in terms of what I think is a, is a normal way of engagement with a, with a student and the, and the student with the institution. A, a veteran who is what would typically be termed on a traditional four-year campus, a non-traditional student. They're not 18 years old. They have not come straight out of high school to enroll in college. You may say, oh, well, we have all these, uh, you know, adult learning opportunities. We have all these things. Those programs may not actually line up. And, and I think the second thing, the, the second point of this and something you just talked about, and we've brought up that we don't want students to leave. There's a lot of misinformation out there about veterans in terms of their ability to persist. They're very good at persisting. How come they are good at persisting and what can we do to maximize that on our campus rather than pump the brakes on their persistence? Right, so yeah, so there's two things. What, what experiences or programming or background about veterans, who's, by the way, whose common story is, I wasn't college ready at 18 and now they're cleaning up at age 24, right? Um, so what is it about that that somehow we can see, right? Because we do we do all of these college entrance exams, which, you know, are now getting a lot of bad rep because we thought for a long time the SAT and the ACT were supposed to be predictors of success in college. Well, the data bears out that there's there's no there there, right? That That is not a thing. But the the preparation, the non-academic preparation that veterans have would appear to be something that is far more indicative of success or potential success than the SAT or the ACT. And so are there things there that we can do and share for everybody else? Um, so that that's one thing. Um, and, and then the other thing is, is how can we how can we leverage that to learn lessons then just to help our veterans? And so, um, of course, there are some veterans who are not college ready, even though they have the GI Bill, right? And so I talk about, so, so let's throw some numbers out there. You know, it, it's hard to get accurate numbers because when we say college graduation, well, what do you mean by college? So, you know, if 50% if of people who start college graduate, you know, that's one data point. Um, but that number typically includes community colleges, which finally we're getting to a point where we are no longer expecting 
the mission of community colleges to be graduating people with a two-year degree because the customer, the student, does not use it for that purpose. They use it as a less expensive alternative to get, you know, the, the common core uh, things out of the way so that they can focus on their degree at the four-year in, in a lot of cases. So, or if they're looking at some kind of training opportunity, it may not be yeah. a two-year degree. It might be a certification right. in electrical and in, in right. electrician work so, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So I like focusing on four-year college success rates at the undergrad level. And that number is more like 58%, um, you know, which, which isn't great, um, but it's better than 50%, right? And so, you know, if, if you look at the uh, the Million Records review that Student Veterans of America did, uh, you will find that, you know, conservatively speaking, 72% of our veterans are graduating. It, you know, I choose to sift through the data and I can find an argument that around 77.5% of student veterans are graduating. And, and this is, you know, when veterans have a little bit of delay, you're extending it out to eight years instead of six years. Um, but the reason why you can do that with veterans is because the, the traditional non-veteran student um, Basically, if they don't finish in six years, they don't statistically speaking, they don't finish. I mean, there are some, but it doesn't amount. Whereas veterans will persist at rates well beyond traditional students uh, beyond the six years. And so so you have that and, and, you know, that you start to peel the onion back and you start to figure out, well, was it the discipline? Was it the mission focus? Was it the, you know, the peer support? Was it the confidence they have in themselves, whatever it is they learned in the military, some stuff happened while they were in the military that make them more successful. And so let's just say for easy percentages, that was 75% of veterans who start will finish their degree. So that leaves 25% that you have to figure out. This, in my mind, is where I think research needs to go, but this is very hard to do. So there are some, there's two types of student veterans in those 25% who don't finish. One segment of that, and nobody knows what this percentage is because it's hard to know, um, was never well suited for college. I mean, we have a lot of people besides veterans who go to college who shouldn't go to college. We have a lot of 18 year olds who go to college who are not college ready. And but that's what they're supposed to do. And they end up failing. Right. So can we identify even though so we've eliminated the financial obstacle with yellow ribbon or even not yellow ribbon going to a state institution, these people are not finishing because it doesn't matter that they, they go for free. They can't do the work. Right. So you shouldn't be there. But there's the, the percentage and, and whatever number that is, is fine. But the percentage that I'm more interested in, whatever it is, is there are probably some percentage of those who don't graduate who, if we got better services, provided better help, provided better support, could in fact graduate because they can do it, but they just have so many obstacles, so many challenges, and either were not aware of it, didn't seek the help, uh, or whatever. And so to me, that's where I think we need to go. We need to stop this messaging of veterans are not successful because they are. But there's a there's a segment out there that that we can get more help for. And again, when when I when I go back and I say, you know, we've sort of been on the wrong track for 15 years out in the literature talking about veteran struggle, it's that small segment that struggle and we need to figure out how to help them. But the broader population, they don't need help. And, mm -hmm. and that's fine. And that's good. We, it's like everything else. You know, 
we only need the hearing impaired to go to disability services and get hearing accommodations. We don't need people with perfect hearing to go seek a hearing accommodation because it's a waste of everybody's time, right? So this is what we've got. to. So I don't know, that was rather long and rambling, but that that I think is kind of where we need to try to get with our, our veteran friendliness is dialing in on the portion of the population that actually needs help. But you also, most campuses already have something there. They already have tools, whether it be early alert programs or care teams or whatever the case may be. They have things. They just have to almost like add add a layer in terms of intervention to say, okay, we, we don't want to just jam them into what is a stereotypical response. You know, like I was um, earlier today, I was sitting in on a, on a person in my cohort in my doctoral program who uh, defended her dissertation. And she was looking at BIPOC students in a completely different population. But some of this actually resonates is that BIPOC students who are first, who may be first gen, um, maybe not, but BIPOC students who are looking at institutions, predominantly white institutions, and they have mentors who are, who are white. And they have seen a disconnect in terms of what the mentors have been able to provide them in terms of understanding the lived experience of the BIPOC student, et cetera. Like, and there's a lot of this spirit behind what she was talking about in her studies and, and that sort of thing. And what you're talking about is that we have these systems in place, but we just we we just think, okay, we bought this fancy software or we have a we have a process. But we're not actually thinking about, okay, who makes up our campus? Who's enrolled in our campus? Are, do we have, what does our enrollment actually look like on a given year? Oh, look at this. We actually, according to our registrar and according to admissions, we've got, you know, we're a small institution. And this year we have a dozen veterans on campus. Ooh, what does that look like? Now, initially, when I would see something like that on a small campus, the people who would start to go, are, is the counseling center because they would they would immediately think that we have to now offer different kinds of counseling instead of no let's let's make sure that we we connect these students these veteran students to the proper initiatives on our campus no matter what they are whether it be like we, I mean we had a, a, a veteran student who he um, he ended up getting called back up to do active duty and he, instead of coming to us and saying, hey, I got this this paperwork. It says I've got to go down to, to uh, Guantanamo Bay and, and you know, all this stuff. And he ended up taking time off, but he it disenrolled as soon as he got the damn paperwork. So then he ended up in a, in a hole financially. And we're yep. like, what are you doing? You, you, need, you should have come to us in advance so that we could have said, pump the brake. Don't disenroll. Keep going to class. Nothing in the government works that fast. Um, and so, you know, what do you have to do? We have a speaker request. We have Doug, and I'm going to have him come on up and ask a question. Uh, Doug, thank you. You're one of our frequent flyers here on Office Hours. Welcome. Uh, what's your question? Oh, great. Thanks, Laura. And and it's mostly a question for for David, but it's something that. I've been an academic advisor for a while, and when I was still very green early on advising students, I wanted to make sure that I could maximize the experience, and there are all these choices, and there are these great things. 
And I was taken aback when advising veteran students where sometimes there was um, there was a discomfort with having a ton of choices where it was like a it seemed like it was a just tell me what to do kind of vibe to the conversation, which was very different and a little jarring for me. Now, over the years, it, it's stabilized and the veteran students I talk to are kind of just like anyone else. But sometimes there is a little bit of that, um, I don't want, it's not exactly a discomfort with having choices, but it's not as core to their experience as a veteran student as compared to someone who's entering this new vista of higher education. And wow, this is great. So I want to ask David, like, what, what is the way to um, guide that conversation with, in meeting with a student, a veteran student for, is this a situation where they really want to see what's out there and get everything, um, get everything they want? Or is it more like a, tell me what to do so that I get this done as it's a means to an end, you know, complete the mission kind of thing. It's, that's a hard thing to just come out and ask, but what's your take on that as, as to how veteran students embrace their, the choices they have in their education? Right. That's a great question. Thanks, Doug. Um, I, I think that um, there are both kinds of students, if, if there are two kinds of students there. You know, one is looking for the grand academic exploration. Uh, but I think, too, um, not only are there a fair number, if not the majority of veterans, who just tell me what to do to get my degree. Because, again, most are not here for the grand academic experience. This is the stepping stone to that higher paying job. So just tell me what I need to do to get out of here. Um, and, and so... The, the liberating part about that is even the ones that are looking for the grand academic experience, if you tell them that most students take, you know, history 301 to achieve this requirement, they'd be like, OK, and, and, and they won't argue. And so, um, there, you know, so there's a couple of things uh, and I don't want to suggest that you're not culturally competent. It sounds like you've got plenty of exposure to veterans, but the, the broader audience um can benefit from this. This is a great example of cultural awareness, right? So even those who seek the grand academic experience can still handle this is what it takes to graduate. Go do this. Um, now, obviously, you have to worry about oversubscribing courses and all that kind of stuff. So, but veterans come from an environment that is standards based, and the performance expectation is to meet the standards. Many times, especially when you start talking about Marines or special forces, it's how do we exceed the standard, right? But here, it's like it takes 120 credit hours under these formulations in order to earn the degree. How do I do that? And, and there's no veteran who would disagree with the following. I want to seek a plan where I can do that in the most efficient way possible to get myself out of here as soon as possible. And, um, and so... Um, you, you know, hopefully I'm getting at answering your question, but it's it's really a matter of it, it's OK to tell veterans this is how you can do this easily or effectively um, with the minimal amount of pain, because the veterans are not here to stay in college forever. They want to get out. Uh, and it's a, it's a weird veteran veteran mentality. But 25 year old veteran who's seen the world and done amazing things for five, six, seven years out in the military believes that they're behind 
that 18 year old that they're in first year courses with. And sure, in in numbers of years of life, you might be, but you're not behind. You know, I, I don't know how you get at that, but it's a mentality that we can't shake. We're, we're behind because when they're 22, they're going to be out working at Exxon or whatever. And um, and I'm already 26 and I can't do that. So I'm behind. Right. Um, so does that get at your question, Doug? Yeah, it does. It, it's it's more of a um, like you said, is it's not coming out and asking because that's kind of weird or may make them uncomfortable, but more like a, here is what, here's a way to do this, or here is what a lot of people do for this. And then that can help them kind of steer it as far as a, okay, great. Or, eh, but what else you got? So that does help. I appreciate it. Yeah. And well, and the other thing I actually forgot to tack this on at the end. Um, so veterans are also a very straightforward communicating group of people. And so it is actually okay. You know, if I were a student veteran and my academic advisor asked me, okay, do you want the broad academic experience or do you just want to get out of here, you know, with the minimal amount of pain, right? That's the blunt question. And I would love that question because like, yeah, get me out the door as fast as you can. Okay. So take this course, do this. This is what the people who, right. Or you have that one person who really wants that grand experience. Well, really, you know, take professors, Professor Smith's uh, philosophy of life class. And, um, you know, he asks you to write a long paper, but you're really going to bend your brain and you're going to get a great, right? You can, you can go direct on that too, because veterans are a population that can handle that. Great. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Doug. And, you know, I think one of the things that David, that you brought up, which I think is super important, it goes back to one of the things you were saying about earlier, is this idea of an intake, you know, even just having your veteran services office say, so tell us about what, what is the goal here? How fast do you want to get out? What do you want to do? What, you know, that kind of thing. And at least you can add that to the student's you know, to the student's information so that when the advisor pulls up their information and say, according to veterans services, this student is looking to fast track their completion. Anything we can do to cut through the, you know, cut through the tape is great, you know, in terms of don't give them too many options. They want, they want the, the, the most direct route. Whereas putting it down there and say, nope, this student wants the full Megilla. They want the whole experience, soup to nuts. Okay then give them that. But that's going to be a different opportunity. And and frankly, those things change over time. So the student who might have been looking at it from a, like, I just want the straightest path possible, after a semester at the institution, you say, hey, you know, according to our information, you were looking for the straightest way possible. Anything that's changed? Anything up? Actually, yeah, I've actually started, you know, I joined a club and I really like it. And I'm not in any rush right now. I, I like to do this and I want to do, I want to add an internship or I want to do whatever. You got to have those conversations, but you have to be able to communicate within within the institution um, across, shall we say, party lines. Okay, because you've got some people in one office and another person in another office, and we don't do a very good job talking one hand to the other, um, right. which I think is is absolutely essential with with so many of our student populations, but especially I think with veterans because we're losing out on on some good communication opportunities. Um, right. I want to ask you a question on our way on our way out uh, about women and specifically women veterans. But before I do that, I want to tease out we've got uh, obviously two more episodes here in this arc around veterans uh, coming up over the course of the rest of the month. Um, but then in April, we're going to be focusing on some executive leadership and we've got 
Uh, coming up that month, we have uh, Dr. Walter Kimbrough, former president at Dillard University. We're going to talk about HBCUs and leadership at HBCUs. And then um, uh, later on in the month, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Rick McLennan, who is the former uh, president or chancellor at uh, Northern Idaho Community College, who uh, during his tenure there, politics got in the way and state politics just tore the institution apart in terms of governance. And right now that institution is looking at losing its accreditation because of extraordinary and extreme politics and how that's actually shaping out. So those are two really important uh, conversations we have coming up in April. Um, and, uh, you know, so I want to close out with this question about women. Um, when we think about veterans, I think a lot of people immediately think about somebody who looks a lot like you, David. Um, but there are women veterans who are enrolling in our campuses. And in order for us to be veteran ready for a woman who is a woman veteran coming in, does that look different? And if so, what does it look like? I know you've advised some students in terms of some dissertations on this topic. So I'm interested in what what the, the scholarship is showing right now. So this is where I will look down into the audience and you see Alyssa down there. I don't know if Alyssa wants to jump up on stage because Alyssa is, uh, and I don't know how you do that. Does she tap her icon? I, I'm, I oh. just invited her. So if she sees the um, invitation and wants to wants to yeah. come on up, we can do that. I just sent She's her an invite. She's been recovering from being sick, so I don't know if she has a bad voice or whatever. But um, so Alyssa... invitation to speak. There you go. Yeah. Alyssa um, just completed her um, her doctoral dissertation. So Dr. Alyssa Baldwin uh, is one of my amazing uh, former doctoral candidates. And she is uh, or was part of what's called the Brown Water Navy. Now, I didn't know what the Brown Water Navy was. But if you if you can imagine back in time, if you remember that um, crazy movie Apocalypse Now and yeah. um, those river boats that were driving up and down, uh, you know, the river with machine guns and stuff like that. That's the brown water Navy. They're not out in the deep sea. They're in like rivers and stuff like that. And they're doing some things to protect um, ports and those kinds of things. It's not Coast Guard. It's Navy. Uh, but anyway, that's what Alyssa did. She was a gunboat commander as an enlisted person, which I think is super cool. And, um, and so her um, doctoral dissertation is on the experiences of um, women student veterans in using services. And so she's probably best to um, answer because she came from being in the military and then all through her academic experience. So ask Alyssa what it's like to be a woman uh, veteran coming into the higher ed setting. <laughs> Fantastic. And Alyssa, thank you and welcome to the show. If you want to go on camera, let me know and I will put I will put your camera invitation on. But right now you are audio only. Uh, if you're not feeling camera ready, that's fine. Uh, so Alyssa, welcome and tell us a little bit more about about your perspective on veteran women's experience. Oh, thank you for having me. No, I apologize. I have never used this app before, so <laughs> I was a little illiterate when it came to accepting invitations, so forgive me. Um, yes, actually, I kind of wanted to touch base on Doug's question from earlier. I think one of the important things to note, too, with student veterans is that they're very they're used to having a very specific set of instructions. You have to do this at a specific time. You have to do this and this. And I think that's more so what they're looking for with regard to 
their higher education journey because they don't know what to to expect. Some of them, you know, like the conversation had said, want that, um, you know, the full experience of education. And some of them just want that specific, hey, give me this, I'll do this, this, and this, and then get it done. So I think it's just important to note or be culturally aware of, you know, where they came from, um, specifically regarding, you know, the set of instructions that they're so used to having. But uh, with regard to women student veterans, um, one of the things I actually found in my research is that they do well with my participants, they really desired a more personalized approach um, to services, specifically um, understanding who they are, where they came from, and just having or just displaying that overall sense of caring about their journey, caring about their desires and end goals, um, and even their a journey in in its sense. So it, yeah, uh, it, just focusing on the personalized aspect of pr- the type of support that they receive. That absolutely makes, I mean, I am so glad you're doing this research because it makes so much sense in that women in general want a personalized approach. They don't want to be treated like a and a statistic. And, um, you know, I think it's also, it demystifies in some ways the uh, female veteran experience that a, a, as an academic advisor, a student affairs professional who has said, oh, we have this many veterans on campus. And then breaking that down in terms of how many, how many women we have, how many people of color, et cetera. Those are those things where you have to say, okay, again, there, when you talk about intersecting identities, we have these intersecting identities that relate to our veterans as well as to, to other students on campus. And that this, this woman's perspective is so important. So Alyssa, I, I am thrilled um, that you've done this. And please make sure that you, if you have a link to your dissertation, which I'm sure you do, send it to David and I will make sure that we include it in the show notes for today's show um, because I want people to be able to see that. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot though. I want to ask you one other question. From your experience, did you find that people's um, ability to see you as an individual was lacking in your, in your experience when you enrolled after uh, your active duty? I'm sorry, I'm not understanding the question. Do you mean from a woman student veteran perspective? Yeah, exactly. Like, did you think that people kind of blumped you into like, just here, she's a veteran, we're going to treat her like everybody else? Or did you find yourself like seeking out that like, no, they actually found me as an individual and that made my experience better? Um, That's a great question. So I throughout my educational journey, minus my undergraduate program, I have been an online student. So I think there's, there, there may be a disconnect there um, with regards to, you know, an online or residential students, just because they do have that barrier of, you know, (laughs) being virtual in that sense. Absolutely. So I can't really speak to that experience only because I have no experience with that. So, um, you know, but that very well could be different for residential students. Absolutely. Well, this has been really helpful, Alyssa, and please make sure you get that information out. And 
And you're welcome back to any of the up upcoming shows. So thank you so much. For sure. Thank you so much. So we have come to the end of the show. Um, we have two more shows coming up on this arc. Uh, and the next show is on, uh, they're all on Fridays. So on March 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be talking about uh, mental health and disability services. Um, and then closing out our three show uh, arc on this is the veteran friendly uh, campus show number three on veteran workforce. And that will be on March 31st at 12 noon. Uh, all our times are Eastern times. You are welcome to come back and be part of this. Uh, David, I can't imagine spending a Friday at midday with a more wonderful human than you. So thank you so much. I love much. you. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, David and I don't always agree on everything. And you notice his woke comment earlier. I hope that maybe, just maybe, people kind of see that people don't have to understand each other 100% and not, like, just literally cancel each other out all the time. Like, David knows that sometimes he has to listen to me, and I know sometimes I got to listen to David, and that's what makes the world go round. So there you go. Um, Amen. <laughs> Amen, sister. There you go. So here we go, everybody. Thank you for being here. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. You can find us on Fireside Chat, on Apple Podcasts, on uh, iHeartRadio Podcasts, on Spotify. Thank you for being here. Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded on the Fireside platform. And as your host... Uh, Dr. Laura DeVoe, I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy. It is the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. And follow me here on Fireside Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, links to subscribe are available through my link tree, which is right now scrolling through the center of your uh, app, as well as uh, in the show notes. Uh, to find out more about... Uh, Dr. Baki's Straight Talk for Veterans. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you find your books. Uh, so have a great day, and we hope to see you next, next time. And get out there and learn something, everybody. Have a great weekend. Created live on Fireside.